If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Mass vaccinations begin tomorrow. We are going to be saving lives with every single dose that we give. The priority population and a warning that there is a long way to go. Chapters under fire for turning a family away. I think this is something that needs to be addressed because Andrew was already faced with so many different challenges. The major book retailer accused of misreading the mask mandate. And a man stranded and freezing in a waterfall. We knew hypothermia would be setting in and we had to move quickly. The dramatic rescue that saved his life. You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thanks for joining us. BC is taking a major step to bring the COVID-19 pandemic to an end now that a shipment of the vaccine has arrived. Mass vaccinations begin tomorrow. More on that in just a moment. But first, a look at today's numbers, which include three counting periods. We have 2,146 new cases, bringing BC's total now to 42,943. Sadly, we lost 49 more people, which means 640 seven people have now died from complications of the virus in BC. 359 people are in hospital, 87 in the ICU. 31,207 people are considered recovered. We're now left with just over 10,000 active cases and 11,177 people in self-isolation. The first flight carrying the Pfizer COVID vaccine touched down on Canadian soil early this morning with healthcare workers in Ontario and Quebec the very first to roll up their sleeves and get the shot. Aaron MacArthur has more details from BC's rollout plan and why the province won't be following one of Pfizer's own guidelines. The first of millions. Healthcare workers in Ontario and seniors in Quebec rolling up their sleeves to receive a vaccine. Today, really, we turn the corner. You know, I I like to say this is the shot that will be heard around the world, literally. The first shipment of the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine arrived in Canada Sunday night. The logistics needed to move and store the vials complicated by the ultra-low temperatures needed. Adding to the challenges, the vaccine needs to be administered twice to everyone who wants it. The first dose providing about 50% immunity to COVID-19. The second dose, given at least 21 days later, providing a much more complete level of immunity. The full effects not felt for about a week after that second shot. I made it! Canada initially expects delivery of about 30,000 doses a week. Those shipments will continue and should get larger as manufacturing capacity ramps up. BC's first allocation of 3,900 are already in province and will be ready for use Tuesday. I'm emotional every time I think about it and I'm going to be at the clinic tomorrow, so I'm really looking forward to seeing the, the first vaccines go into uh, arms of healthcare workers here. Well, Pfizer has recommended holding back half of the doses to ensure everyone gets their two shots, 
BC is working on a different distribution model. First, giving the shot to as many people as possible and then relying on the supply chain to have enough available later to ensure the second dose. I have a real challenge um, leaving vaccine in a fridge when there are so many people at risk right now. While the first two sites to start vaccinations are in the Lower Mainland, by this time next week there will be nine more up and running province-wide. Aaron MacArthur, Global News. All right, let's bring in Keith Baldry for more on the vaccine. Exciting news uh, today, Keith. Aaron just touched on the nine centers that are coming, but right now it is just the two. <laughs> what is the rollout plan for areas seeing an uptick? Yeah, it's going to happen very quickly. I talked to Health Minister Adrian Dix about this uh, at length today. Uh, 4,000 uh, doses this week, but literally tens of thousands of doses expected to arrive in the weeks ahead, and they're going to all health authorities as of next week. One of the challenges with the Pfizer vaccine, of course, is it has to be kept at a very low temperature. So moving it around is a challenge, and they've got to figure a way to do that. The best hope, though, in terms of getting the virus or the vaccine out to long-term care home residents and sort of other areas of the province where moving it is not much of a challenge is the Moderna vaccine, which is close to being approved by Health Canada and it's at the same efficacy rate as Pfizer. Good news when that vaccine comes online. And Dr. Henry talking about what she looks for from Moderna. But the other um, thing that we're looking at is the Moderna vaccine has less stringent restrictions because of the way it's manufactured and it can be moved around more easily at fridge temperatures. So uh, it, as soon as one or the other is available, we'll be uh, looking at how we can move it out to long-term care homes rapidly. So again, the events are about to unfold very rapidly on this front. The goal is to get uh, almost 400,000 British Columbians inoculated uh, by the end of March. And those are all the frontline healthcare workers, first responders, uh, essential service workers in groceries, manufacturing, teachers, for example. And then the rest of the uh, vaccine doled out to people based on incremental uh, steps in determining how old you are by five-year intervals. The older you are, the quicker you're going to get this uh, vaccine. And again, it's going to be a very active uh, next few months, right up until September, which is the end goal, but hope mm -hmm. everybody has it. All right, thanks for that, Keith. All right. Well, now that a COVID vaccine is actually here, a new survey shows a huge majority of British Columbians are in fact ready and willing to get the shot. And as Ted Chernecki reports, the experts say that is particularly good news. Now that the rollout has begun, how willing are we to roll up our sleeves? That's the question the Angus Reid Foundation asked. The answer? More willing than ever. As soon as the vaccine is available to them, as soon as it's their turn, we're noticing a big increase in the number of people who are saying, give it to me right away, I don't want to hold back. Asked if you will get vaccinated Canada-wide, 48% said yes as soon as possible. 14% said no. In BC, 54% said vaccinate ASAP, with only about 9% saying no. Now contrast that to Alberta, where 47% said yes and 27% said no. 27% is surprising because COVID-19 is now worse there than anywhere in the country. Trust in government is, is a big driver, especially among those who say no. Graphically, you can see how support is growing across Canada, up about 8% from a month ago. From a medical point of view, that's encouraging because unlike a flu shot, for example, where its effectiveness is in the 40 to 50% range, this COVID vaccine is 95% effective. That means that we don't have to have the entire population take the vaccine. Even if 80% of the population in British Columbia, for example, will take the vaccine, 
this will provide a very good community support. As to the concerns about being immunized, 70% were worried about unknown long-term side effects. 39% believe the vaccine was too rushed. And 27% don't trust health authorities and or politicians. Ted Chernecki, Global News. Well, the issue of wearing a mask has become a hot button for some people, but tonight the chapters chain is under fire for its handling of the rules. Two people have come forward saying they were refused entry for not wearing a mask, despite having legitimate reasons why they can't. John Hua reports. (laughs) Moments like these help calm Andrew McCormick. A little stability amidst all the confusion created in his life by the COVID-19 pandemic. Andrew was diagnosed with autism, neurodevelopmental disorder, and his sensory processing disorder. Another familiar activity visiting this Indigo bookstore in Burnaby. When the family tried to go with Andrew to buy a new book, the 12-year-old was turned away for not wearing a mask. It probably would take three adults to restrain him and have that mask successfully put on him and then he would eventually just rip it off. His mother tried her best to explain and even volunteered a note from Vancouver Coastal Health's head of pediatrics. She still said that he wasn't allowed entry. The staff there did offer a few options in terms of online shopping, curbside pickup or delivery via Instacart. They refused to let me in. This video taken a few weeks later at the Indigo store on Granville in Vancouver. Elizabeth Walker Young was told to mask up or leave. My elbows don't bend, so if you just see how I'm doing this, and so putting on a mask is is impossible. Despite trying to educate her need for an exemption, things escalated quickly. And if if I don't leave, what will you do? And he said, I'll call the police. In a statement to Global News, Indigo pointed to the three alternative ways to shop for people who can't wear masks, stating while our solution isn't perfect, we believe it is necessary for these unprecedented times to keep employees and customers as safe as possible. A solution echoed by BC's top doctor. Ordering online, finding ways that people can get what they need with when there's not other people around. There are things that can be done. But those speaking out disagree and say those accommodations aren't a replacement of their right to go into a store like anyone else. That also is quite um, a discriminatory policy. There's assumptions being made. He doesn't have the ability to use a computer or doesn't understand the concept of online shopping. Tina Chow has filed a BC human rights complaint calling Indigo's response discrimination. <laughs> arguing keeping people safe from COVID-19 shouldn't come at the cost of those already marginalized. John Hua, Global News. Several people watch in horror as a man is nearly swept over Little Qualicum Falls. The heroic rescuer who put his own life on the line to save him in just over a minute. A massive scar left on BC's coastal landscape and what caused it coming up later on the news hour. And Joe Biden takes another critical step toward the White House and there's nothing Donald Trump can do to stop it. That's coming up. But first, a search and rescue team on Vancouver Island carried out a dangerous and dramatic rescue on Saturday. A man fell into the frigid, turbulent waters of the Little Qualicum River, struggling to cling to a log while waiting for help. Kylie Stanton reports. The water is relentless, and this log a lifeline. But every passing second could very well be this man's last. We knew hypothermia would be setting in, and we had to move quickly. 
Rivers, a swift water rescue technician, has lowered 26 meters into the frigid waters at Little Qualicum Falls, desperately trying to reach a man stranded just four and a half meters above the lower fall. His initial plan, to get upstream onto another log and try to approach the man face to face in order to secure a harness. But the currents are far too strong. The power of the water. And so instead, Rivers shifts course and tries to make contact from below. But just as he gets into position, the man slips away. What had happened is he had lost his handheld on the log and fell into the river and he was heading for the next waterfall. At which point I just jumped after him and grabbed on as tight as I could. The two are pounded by water, sometimes disappearing underneath. Okay. Stop, stop until the team pulls them into a small cove closer to the cliff, finally securing the harness. It took every ounce of energy I had to get there. Uh, when I got to the top, uh, yeah, I couldn't even stand. <laughs> I had to be carried out. 30 people are involved, including the Aerosmith SAR team, the Alberni Valley Rescue Squad, as well as firefighters. But it's Rivers who's getting a lot of the much-deserved credit. On Monday, friends of the man he saved take a moment to share their thanks while others hope this rescue serves as a reminder of just how powerful Mother Nature can be. People don't think uh, that they have to respect the river, particularly this time of year when there's so much more water coming down. And the outcome isn't always this successful. After being pulled to safety, the man is so hypothermic he can barely speak. Crews put him on a stretcher and take him to hospital, where he's still recovering but showing improvements. Rivers is on the mend as well, still quite sore from the ordeal. Without a doubt, this rescue will go down as one of the most challenging and technical of his career. I mean, if you're not a little scared when you're down there, you're not human. Kylie Stanton, Global News. Wow. Good work. Yes, for sure. Up next, ICBC promises cheaper auto insurance as soon as the spring. The largest decrease to basic insurance rates in more than 40 years. Putting out the dumpster fire and giving back to drivers. Also tonight, Vancouver's plan to make Strathcona a park again and finding shelter for the homeless. Traffic is easing off on most major routes at this point and the iron workers is no exception. Traffic is moving well both ways, especially after clearing an stall southbound before the north end. This week, save on hundreds of perfect gift ideas for everyone on your list at your local home hardware. Come home for Christmas and save big this holiday season. I'm Trish Jewison in Global One at the Ironworkers Memorial Bridge. Experts say home prices across Metro Vancouver will continue to rise next year if market conditions stay the same. Real estate prices across the region have climbed this year, driven by a low supply of inventory. Royal LePage says that if we don't see an injection of new listings by the end of January, home prices will simply keep going up. The average price of a single detached home could soar by as much as 9% year over year to nearly $1.3 million, while condo prices would go up 3.5%. The B.C. government says ICBC's transition to no-fault insurance this spring will save drivers 15 to 20 percent on their insurance, a saving that will work out to about $400 per year. But as Richard Zussman reports, there's still no word if B.C. will follow almost every other jurisdiction in North America in handing out a pandemic rebate. It's the break people have been looking for. With ICBC, 
set to apply to the BC Utilities Commission for the largest decrease to basic insurance rates in more than 40 years. The application is for a 15% cut to basic insurance rates. When coupled with a planned decrease to optional insurance rates, drivers could be looking at a 20% savings or an average $400 a vehicle. We are taking literally $1.5 billion that would have gone into uh, fighting cases uh, in, in court. That's a significant savings. But drivers have to wait as the province gears up for a switch to no-fault insurance. The shift happens on May 1st, 2021. The opposition quick to note, everything not as great as it seems. They came into government, they increased the rates, and now they're taking them back again to the way they used to be. Under no fault, British Columbians lose their right to sue for damages in almost all auto collisions. It also comes with a beefing up of benefits. So what if the BC Utilities Commission actually turns down government's request? We have an external actuary who's checking our math. We've hired uh, Ernst & Young to provide an independent assessment of the assumptions that we've made. Because the switch will happen mid-policy for most drivers, the province is working out a rebate that will be sent out next year. As for a possible COVID-19 rebate, it's something almost every other jurisdiction has received due to lower risk during peak pandemic. There are options that are being presented in terms of a rebate uh, for the overall year. Uh, that will be on my uh, desk in the, in, the next, uh, in the next few days. If the rebate comes, plus the planned decrease in rates, it signs the province may have finally figured out how to put out the so-called ICBC dumpster fire. Richard Zussman, Global News, Victoria. Two months after Vancouver approved a $30 million plan to move homeless people inside, the park board says it is finally ready to end the Strathcona Park tent city. Grace Key has more on where campers will be housed and why there's no timeline on when the park will be returned to a public space. The plan to end the encampment at Strathcona Park is moving forward, but the Jericho Hostel in Point Grey is not being used exclusively for the homeless at Strathcona. And a case like Jericho, because of its physical location and it's, it's not really close to services or anything like that, we do anticipate Jericho being deployed as a shelter um, for people that can live more independently. The Jericho Hostel and 2400 Motel on Kingsway are two city-owned sites that will be used as temporary indoor spaces for the homeless. Two other sites are being looked into for a total of almost 300 beds. The two additional locations are not being revealed at this time. We have submitted uh, funding requests to the province. So in terms of these spaces, we do, do, we do need confirmation of operating funding to activate them. And so we are not we are not at this point ready to go with with these spaces. With funding yet to be secured and work needed at the sites, there's no timeline in place for when the move would happen. Warming centers, showers, and additional washrooms will be added during the interim. Many Strathcona residents have expressed concerns about the homeless encampment. It was set up in June, the same day the tents near Crab Park were dismantled. Traffic is steady in both directions over here at the Alex Fraser Bridge. Keep in mind, though, lane closures for overnight maintenance between 10 p.m. and 5 a.m. For 47 years, Kermat Collision and Auto Glass has provided unmatched superior customer service and satisfaction. With 18 lower mainland locations, there's a Kermac in your neighborhood. Visit Kermac.com. I'm Trish Jewison in Global One at the Alex Fraser Bridge. There's been a huge landslide in a remote fjord on the central coast. The slide seems to have originated somewhere high up Butte Inlet. 
And as you can see, the devastation is immense. This video comes from 49 North helicopters based in Campbell River. They say after hearing about an unusual amount of wood and other debris, they flew up the inland to get a look at the damage. But because of low cloud, were unable to see the origin of the landslide itself. Butte Inlet is 80 kilometers long and ringed with steep mountains, with some rising to 2,800 meters. That's more than 9,000 feet. It looks like there was a large landslide um, near the head of Elliott Creek. It uh, flowed down, hit a glacier, turned the corner, and then hit a lake. And uh, it caused a very large wave in the lake. We estimate it's anywhere from 70 to, say, 110 meters high, which traveled down the lake. Uh, it overtopped the outlet and then water rushed down towards the Southgate River. The Electoral College in the U.S. made it official today. Joe Biden is going to be the 46th president of the United States. Biden has easily cleared the 270 electoral vote mark to formalize his presidential victory with California's 55 electoral college votes. The voting milestone came this afternoon when California electors affirmed Biden's 5 million vote win last month in the nation's largest state. The Electoral College took on added importance this year because of Donald Trump's refusal to concede that he lost his race for re-election. At this point, Trump continues to say his fight is not over, although there is nothing more he can do from a legal standpoint. The largest vaccination campaign in U.S. history got underway today with healthcare workers receiving the first doses of the COVID-19 vaccine this morning. Celebrations, however, were muted as Global's Reggie Cicchini reports. Today's hope comes as the country's death toll soars. As the sun rose over New York, Americans caught a glimmer of hope. I hope this marks the beginning to the end of a very painful time in our history. A nurse on Long Island who fought on the front lines for the past year, receiving one of the first doses of the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine. I've been waiting for this day for forever. Not too bad. It's a scene playing out in all 50 states to shield healthcare workers who have worked tirelessly to care for the country. We are so excited to take this first step today. Nearly three million doses have been shipped across the United States, but it's a bittersweet moment. The vaccine marks the beginning of a return to normal, but will do little to blunt the trauma being felt right now. Just because we're talking about it, it's not going to be a panacea. The U.S. is recording 3,000 deaths a day on average. And on Monday, the country surpassed 300,000 deaths. One, two, three. The hospital crisis in the U.S. is growing worse by the hour. ICUs in parts of California and Alabama are out of beds. It's really been ramping up over the past couple of weeks and uh, much more quickly now over the past several days. As new vaccines are approved, a possibility for Moderna's vaccine this week, the odds increase for protecting Americans. If you are recommended to get it and it's available for you, oh, please do get it. 50 million could be vaccinated by March, but not nearly enough to have widespread benefits. And with COVID fatigue impacting millions, healthcare officials fear complacency could keep the virus going strong. People really need to keep their eye on the prize, vigilance, practicing everything we've been talking about. Even with a vaccine, the forecast is grim. Half a million deaths by April, keeping normal just out of arm's reach as the U.S. 
heads into the darkest days of the pandemic. Reggie Cicchini, Global News, Washington. While indoor gatherings are still a no-no, one Vernon City Councillor wants to make it easier for families to get together in the great outdoors. Councillor Scott Anderson will be bringing a motion to Council to temporarily allow families to set up propane fire pits in Polson Park. The plan is to, or is designed rather, to give families a safe space to get outdoors in the winter while still staying warm. The motion makes it clear that those gatherings should only include family bubbles and that separate groups need to stay at least two meters apart. I think it behooves us to, as a city, to do what we can for our residents to, uh, you know, give them safe outdoor spaces that they can be outdoors. A lot of people can't afford to go to go to uh, skiing and expensive things like that but everybody can afford to sit around a fire well working from home certainly has its challenges but new research suggests many canadians are hoping to avoid office life at least part-time once the pandemic ends and as Catherine urquhart reports it's raising some questions about the economic impact of the post-covid workplace question is how do democracy working from home is not always so easy, especially for people with young children. I would be surprised if they do. <laughs> the, um, pardon me. Even so, a new poll indicates most British Columbians would like to continue working from home when the pandemic is over. Maybe we're a little bit uneasy at first about working from home, uh, but those who have been doing this for the past few months certainly enjoy it, and they would like to continue. Research Co.'s online survey of 803 people found that 80% of us hope to work from home more often when the pandemic ends. Also, 89% said they feel their company trusts they are carrying out their duties from home. 78% believe they're perfectly equipped for work from home and... 80% of those asked said working from home is easier than expected. It was a little bit uh, frustrating at first for many of them to be told you need to be on time, you need to log into this website, you need to do these things at specific moments from your home. Uh, but now, a few months later, um, they seem to be thriving with it. Of course, if people continue working from home, there will be a huge decline in demand for office space. Also, restaurants and many shops will suffer. It's still early to tell in terms of how much work from home will become part of the new normal. But certainly it's part of the discussions that we're having you know, with our members. Some might choose a hybrid model, which involves working from home two or three days a week. That might allow for better connections at the office. Balanced, perhaps, with those demands at home. Catherine Urquhart, Global News. In Health Matters tonight, with the pandemic creating a need for remote learning options for students, there are concerns about the eyesight of children as they spend even more time in front of a computer. And while some of that screen time is unavoidable, optometrists say there are steps parents can take to minimize the harmful effects. Angie Oberholzer has always put strict limits on her son's screen time encouraging time outdoors and playing games. But when their school in Scottsdale, Arizona switched to remote learning, all bets were off. When this all happened and they switched online, I mean, they went to now being on a screen from eight to three. She worries about how all that computer time will affect their vision. I see so many kids at the school with glasses at young ages. And I keep asking people, why are so many kids in glasses? Why are they glasses? 
And I keep getting the same answers, the screens, the screens. In fact, the nation's vision has been deteriorating for decades. The data from the 70s, when I started in practice, uh, nearsightedness was about 25% of the population. Uh, today, it's over 40%. Optometrist Scott Edmonds says parents can take steps to protect their children's eyes, like making sure they're at least 30 inches away from their screens. And he recommends following the 20-20-20 rule. Every 20 minutes, they should look away from the computer out into the distance at an object 20 feet or greater uh, for 20 seconds. New York City is struggling to keep its schools open. And across the country, millions of children are learning partly or totally online. Staring at screens can also lead to fatigue and headaches and possible long-term effects from blue light radiating directly into the eyeball. We're concerned that the blue light over a lifetime can cause changes to the retina that would be manifest as age-related macular degeneration. Oberholzer puts blue light filters on the boys' computers to limit the exposure and makes sure when schoolwork is done, screen time is over. Nancy Chen, CBS News, New York. And still ahead, helping seniors stuck at home. They might not be able to get access to the culturally appropriate foods for themselves. The pandemic lifeline showing that Chinatown cares. And a pro golfer with a real gift. How his Christmas tips are making spirits bright. You're watching Global News Hour at 6. The Wall Street Journal doubled down on a column that sparked a lot of controversy over the weekend. The column suggested soon-to-be First Lady Jill Biden stop using the title doctor even though she is one. And that ignited a firestorm and a debate over sexism. Like many people with doctorates, Jill Biden calls herself Dr. Biden. Think of Dr. Kissinger. But Joseph Epstein, a former university English instructor who has a bachelor's degree, argued Biden should drop the doctor from her name because she is not a medical doctor. From the moment I stepped into the community college, I thought, this is it, I'm home. Dr. Biden earned her doctorate in education from the University of Delaware and has taught at community colleges for 35 years. I have always loved the sounds of a classroom. The op-ed drawing fire in part for its tone. Epstein addressing Biden in his opening line as, Madam First Lady, Mrs. Biden, Jill, kiddo. Perhaps he should know better than to mess with a woman who body-blocked a protester from getting to her husband last March. A spokesman for Biden calling the column disgusting and sexist. Doug Emhoff, Vice President-elect Kamala Harris's husband, tweeting, This story would never have been written about a man. Michelle Obama writing, All too often our accomplishments are met with skepticism, even derision. Biden taking the high road, tweeting, Together we will build a world where the accomplishments of our daughters will be celebrated rather than diminished. The Wall Street Journal editorial page editor called the criticism overwrought. Dr. Biden, known to her students as Dr. B, plans to continue teaching as first lady. Overwrought. Slightly. Oh my. Okay, okay. sorry. All right, let's move right on. Let's go to meteorologist Christy Gordon for a look at our forecast. And uh, there might be a tiny little bright spot coming. <laughs> tiny little, yes. I almost don't want to even focus on it just yet because uh, it's so far off still. And uh, yes, very tiny. So overall, what you can expect this week, everyone, 
is wet weather on and off. Yeah, so get the umbrellas and rain jackets ready. Here's a look at the chance of rain for Metro Vancouver ramping up this evening. Overnight tonight, we will see periods of rain and likely through the morning hours tomorrow. So give yourself a little bit of extra time. But overall, over the next two days, despite the fact that chance of rain drops down for a period of time and then ramps back up again, uh, you'll definitely set, we'll see wet weather. And we're talking about significant snow. There is a winter storm warning in effect for the Coquihalla. Up to 30 centimeters of snow expected through the next 36 hours. We're expecting snow up towards Whistler as well and in the Columbia and the Kootenai region. Here is the highway forecast for tonight and tomorrow, as we mentioned, 30 for Coquihalla. Many other regions like Allison Pass up to 20 centimeters of snow, Whistler 15, and the Fraser Canyon potentially up to 10 as well. Now here's a look at the lower elevation snowfall amounts. So this is even into the valley bottoms. One key area, Kitimat, you're under a snowfall warning with up to 30 centimeters of snow expected as I said by the end of the day tomorrow we're into Wednesday morning I should say and across southern regions key areas we're watching is the Columbia region Revelstoke West Kootenai area Castle Gar Nelson 10 to 15 centimeters of snow for you and potentially significant amounts in through the Whistler area as well now if you're in the Okanagan Valley not as much but still snow on and off starting tonight and certainly through the morning hours for you tomorrow meanwhile coastal regions will be milder and that's where we'll see rainfall overnight and through the morning hours. So the next two days, wet weather on and off. The bright spot that Sophie was talking about is Thursday. Yes, there's a chance we could see some breaks, but it will likely be short-lived. We hope to broaden that or uh, make it last a little bit longer as we get closer. This is from today in the Eaglet Lake area just outside of Prince George. Amber sharing that with us. Stunning. I'm always looking for bright spots, Christy. I, I focus <laughs> on, on the sun icons, no matter how small. <laughs> so optimistic. Uh, going for a skate. Very cool. Okay, the next story kind of creeped me out a little bit. An anxious dog owner frantically searches for her best friend who became lost following a wild weekend of weather in Australia. Intense storms churned up mounds of sea foam, Chris. Look at it all. Yeah, I don't like it. I don't like it. <laughs> so thick. Hazel the dog disappeared while playing in it. Thankfully, her owner was brave enough to wade through it. Yeah, no. You'd do the same for Susie, wouldn't you, Chris? I might leave her. <laughs> and the search was fairly quick. <laughs> Hazel was pulled from the waves of foam, reunited with her much-relieved owner. Of course I would save Susie, <laughs> but I wouldn't like it. I like my ocean water to be crystal clear. No, fair enough, fair enough. All right, Squires here. Last time I saw that much foam at a Lions training camp, somebody put detergent in the hot tub. Oh. <laughs> that would do the trick. The hotel was not happy. I bet. Uh, okay, so they're inching closer and closer and closer to uh, coming up with an NHL season that would start in January. We'll talk about, a bit about that. The Seahawks, of course, had a big win yesterday against the Jets. And we'll show you a golfer will give you a lesson if you donate to charity. Spirit of giving mm -hmm. at Christmas. Use some tips. Also tonight, food for the soul. Showing in a pandemic, Chinatown cares. Are you cleaning? Are you are you dusting I'm yourself off? I'm brushing myself. I don't want. Yeah, I'm I'm good to go. You now. look good. My job bad eyesight. So. Okay. <laughs> what? Then I'm going to ask you all the time. Hey, Sophie, how do I look? You look great. I can't. 
The NHL and the Players Association have been texting, calling, and Zooming each other all weekend to uh, come closer to getting an ironclad plan to start next season. Now, we've mentioned this a number of times, January 13th. That's the unofficial target date. And if that is the case, then training camps would have to start just after the new year. And that's why this has to be decided soon, because any player, especially a player on a Canadian team, would need to get back to his city where he plays in quarantine first. And if the league and the union do come to an agreement soon, there would still have to be a vote before they could green light this. But you would think if they come to an agreement, the vote would obviously be yes. Uh, Seattle's 43 win over the uh, winless Jets yesterday puts the Seahawks' probability of making the playoffs now at 99% with three games to go. Now, beating the Jets this year is like beating a two-year-old at the game of chess. It's not a lot to brag about, but Pete Carroll loved the win because his team showed no mercy. But you just... Like I said, I particularly like this one because this team was struggling and it would be a, a team that most people would say, oh, this is a team you could overlook and you wouldn't be prepared for and, and you're looking past or whatever. And we didn't do that. We didn't do any of that. Okay, tonight Cleveland is the site of the Cleveland Browns against the old Cleveland Browns who became the Baltimore Ravens many years ago. And this is Nick Chubb going in 7 nothing Cleveland. Best running back on the Ravens is their quarterback, Lamar Jackson, and he will weave his way in for one of two touchdowns he has scored in the first half and it's 21-14 for Baltimore over the Browns. U.S. Women's Open, Amy Olsen lost her father-in-law suddenly on Saturday night. Had to play through that grief and played pretty well. Shot a 72 today. Finished second. Could not pull off the win. Third round leader Hanako Shibuno. You're not going to win the whole tournament if you're putting like that. So she did not win. She fell two off the lead and behind the winner, who was A. Lim Kim, who had three birdies on the last three holes. Look at this shot. Is really good on the money. That is incredible. This has been a great tournament for South Korean golfers. They have won nine of the last 13 U.S. Women's Open. They had to play today because of bad weather on the weekend. The uh, Cleveland Indians will change their nickname, but not until the end of the 2021 season. Team owner Paul Dolan said he will not use an interim name like the Cleveland baseball team, the way Washington did when it got rid of the Redskins nickname and called themselves the Washington football team. So until Cleveland decides on a new nickname, it will continue to use Indians. Uh, One nickname that is being mentioned is Spiders. Not Sophie's favorite because there was a pro team called the Cleveland Spiders back in the 1800s. A local golf pro is trying to uh, give golfers the gift of a better swing if they reciprocate with a gift for charity. Think of it as a silver lining found in the dark cloud of the pandemic. Mike Bell has a lot of time on his hands these days. Normally the 28-year-old professional golfer would be down in the desert working on his game. Instead he's in full-on swing analysis mode here at home. And not just his golf swing. I have a lot of time on my hands because of COVID. um, And I'm fortunate enough to not have to really worry about financials right now. Uh, So I thought that I would kind of combine golf and charity. So um, I've just started this uh, thing online where people can send me their swings. um, Then I'll take a short 
you know, five, 10 minute video, uh, giving them a tip and then it, all the proceeds will go to charity. Since it's the season of giving, Mike teed up his idea of giving using his social media platforms. Not even a week into the charitable teaching drive, he's already viewed dozens of swings. And while he asks for a minimum donation of $5, most people are offering upwards of 50 Aside from the generosity being given by those he's helping, he's also noticing a similar swing trait. He's got a lot of power. A lot of them actually, they don't have bad moves. They just have a kind of, they don't really fully understand why the ball does what it does. Um, so I educate them a little bit and then give them some tips on uh, how they can hit it a little straighter. And from Vancouver Golf Club, Michael L. Bell's been a playing pro for six years now. He played on the McKenzie Tour PGA Tour Canada last year. COVID forcing the cancellation this season, so he returned to the Vancouver Golf Tour where he won a pair of tournaments. So if you're in need of a winter swing tune-up and feel like helping out a couple charities near and dear to Mike's heart, make a donation and send him your swing for grooving. I kind of researched a little bit. I came up with Toys for Tots. Um, they help children in need that don't necessarily have families or the best uh, living situation. The other one is Canadian Mental Health Association. Um, I've personally dealt with my, my own health issues. Golf's, golf's given me a lot, um, and I just, you know, it, it was easy enough for me to come up with this idea um, just to, to give back with some extra time on my hands. I neglected to mention Brooke Henderson finished tied for 44th at the U.S. Open when all was said and done. There you go. That's right. Okay, thanks very much, Squire. Let's check in with Andrewa for a look ahead to Global News at 11. And thanks, Sophie. We'll have more on that massive landslide near Campbell River. It happened in a remote area along Butte Inlet and created a wave close to 100 meters or 300 feet in height. And it's not the first time we've had a so-called lake tsunami in B.C. We'll look at what could have happened if it had been if it had happened in a populated area. That story when you join us tonight at 11 o'clock. Sophie, Chris. All right. Thanks, Anne. All right, and when we come back, an expression of love in any language. But uh, this story happens to take place in Chinatown. That's coming up next. Chinatown nonprofits are delivering food and friendship to community elders who are stuck at home due to COVID-19. As Sarah McDonald reports, in just a few months, the program has become a pandemic lifeline for vulnerable seniors. Every week since March, when the pandemic hit full-blown proportions in this province, volunteers in Chinatown have been busy organizing and packing meals and delivering them to a demographic among the hardest hit, but all too often overlooked, Chinese seniors. For a lot of these seniors, human interaction is huge for them. And like so many cultures, so is food that not only provides sustenance, but comfort too. What was really important for us was to make sure that seniors could have access to food that they were comfortable eating, that felt familiar to them. That's where Hua Foundation, along with partnering organizations, comes in, taking personalized orders from dozens of isolated and vulnerable seniors on a weekly basis. This is my Chinese name, actually. With volunteers like Kira Yi, delivering culturally appropriate food to the doorsteps of recipients, along with desperately needed human connection. I actually 
do check-ins on them as part of my delivery. I build connections and, and engage them and um, ensure that they're doing well. For seniors like Som Lee, who at 92 years old has limited vision and mobility, the program is a lifeline. It's very important, she says, I've got to eat. Monday's personalized delivery for her includes her favorite vegetables and restores a sense of independence stolen by pandemic restrictions. A lot of the seniors who live in Chinatown uh, decide to do so, to live independently, and they have community networks here. And this network hopes to continue serving the community for years to come, filling a void while running on crowdfunding and donations. Its organizers say they'll keep the program running as long as there's a need for it, which could be years. Sarah McDonald, Global News. Good, Good for work. The soul. Yeah. yeah, for sure. All right, uh, last word on weather before we go in that glimmer glimmer little glimmer of sunshine that might be coming not that we're putting you on the spot Christy. yeah no pressure no pressure right yeah it's it's still a couple days away so keep tuning back in about that one everyone in the meantime you'll need your gumboots certainly the kids will when they head to school over the next couple of days the rain ramping up this evening and will continue likely through much of the morning hours tomorrow I'll have my sunglasses on standby. <laughs> See, very optimistic, as she should be. Thanks very much for watching, everyone. Have a great night.